Good morning, church. It is a blessing for us to be with you all, to um, have a little church home here in North Carolina. Uh, it's great for our family. We appreciate you all. Um, we just love this community when we get to come and be a part of it. Um, we are today finishing our little two-week mini-series on faith, and we come to a passage that teaches us about one of faith's most central aspects, which is genuine dependence upon God. Because um, at the very heart of the Christian faith is the recognition that we are insufficient and God is sufficient, that we are helpless and that God is all-powerful. And so to put it differently, self-reliance is antithetical to biblical faith. The self-reliant can seek to use God, but they cannot truly trust him in the biblical sense. And that's a problem for most of us. It was certainly a problem for Jacob, the main character of our passage today. We'll be reading chapter 32 in a bit, if you want to open up your Bibles. Um, I've, I've always liked the name Jacob. Uh, it's kind of superficial. I like how it sounds. Um, I, I love the way God worked in Jacob's life. Um, some of you know that my first name is actually John. I am John Armando Robles, and that means that when Jen and I got married, we came to have the same initials, because she is Jennifer Allison. Um, and before our first child was born, we were going to name him Asher, uh, and then kind of towards the end, before he was born, we, we changed our mind, and we decided to name him Joshua. He became Joshua Asher Robles. And we knew when we did that, that meant all three of us would be Jars, J-A-R, but we didn't do it on purpose. And then the time came for our second son to be born. And we thought, well, we have a decision to make. We either need to continue this whole J-A-R thing and be committed or break it completely because we couldn't have a few kids with those initials and then sort of have like a last kid that's excluded from the club. Um, so we decided to keep it going and we kept on having boys. And that meant we kept on needing J names. And, and there was Jacob, biblical, nice sounding. There was just one problem for me, which was its meaning. Because we had been really intentional about the meaning of our kids' names, and we, we've talked to our kids about what their names meant. And so I was picturing this future conversation. They so, oh, so Joshua, your name means the Lord saves. And Jaden, your name means the Lord is the judge. And, and Jeremy, your mean, name means the Lord exalts. And, and little Jacob, your name means usurper, supplanter. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Um, and so after the other names, I just, I, I couldn't do it. But it was the perfect name for Jacob. Um, like many names in the Bible, it revealed his character. He was a supplanter, a deceiver, a, a conniver, constantly grasping for more power. He outwitted his brother. He outwitted his father. He didn't care if he had to cheat to do so. Jacob is one of Scripture's great examples of the self-reliant, self-made man. And that is a problem. It was a problem in his life. It is a problem in many of our lives. And Genesis 32 is the chapter where that all changes, where the self-reliant man is broken. And Jacob is given a new name because here his character is transformed. And not surprisingly, this is the first time in Genesis that he is truly recorded as praying. He learns what it means to depend upon God to truly cling to him. And 
As he does, we learn much about what it means to trust God. We learn more about the nature of faith. Now, as we walk through this chapter, we'll walk through four sections. We will learn about the different layers of reliance. We will learn about the insufficiency of self-reliance. We'll see what it looks like when a self-reliant person turns to God, and then what it looks like when we truly turn to God. And all told, our passage teaches us this, that true faith requires abandoning self-reliance and clinging to God alone. So let's read the passage, and we'll get started. It's a little bit long, but it's good. Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. 
So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinnoh of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinnoh of the thigh. Sinew? Sinew of the thigh. It's better. Um, so first, verses 1 to 5, the layers of reliance. Which is to say, life's complicated. Right? In, in most situations, we depend on a multiple things at the same time. Right? So when you're on an airplane, one of the first things that happens before you take off, you're given the safety instructions. Right? You're told where the emergency exits are. You're told where to find the flotation device. And those things are nice, but they're all secondary. They're backups. Right? If things go according to plan, you will not need them. Right? You don't want to ever need them. The, the quality of the plane, the training of the pilot, regular security checks, all those things come first. Like, I will rely on my flotation device if I have to, but frankly, I would rather not. And so it is with us and God. See, if you believe in God, then you believe he's the provider. You depend on him. But you also have all kinds of earthly resources. You have all kinds of abilities yourself, and you depend on them too. And so then it becomes a question of priority, which is primary which is secondary. Life has all of these different layers, and we depend upon many different things. But they're not equal. We order them. And some of them we view as backups. And that plays itself out in our lives in all kinds of different ways. So, for example, I think about my wife's childhood. And in comparison to most kids, she was pretty impervious to peer pressure. She just wasn't tempted to do a bunch of stupid things just because the cool kids were doing it. And it's not so much that she didn't care at all what the cool kids thought, it's just that she cared a whole lot more about the approval of her parents. She knew her parents loved her, and that just mattered more to her. In comparison, the approval of the cool kids was a distant second. Or more recently in our lives is the reality that people in Turkey have been started, starting to be denied residence permits. And there's potential for a huge problem there. Now, we're dependent on all kinds of different things in that regard. We're dependent on the relationship between Turkey and our home countries, changing policies at the Migration Bureau, God's sovereign provision in our lives, our, our own ability to work the system, and the nature of each of our standing there. And those things all operate on different levels. They're all real. They're all important. But we value them differently. We prioritize some over others. And anxiety comes into our lives when the things we most greatly value are threatened or uncertain. So look with me at our passage. Right? Years before this, Jacob had cheated his brother out of his birthright and their family's blessing. And Esau was enraged and wanted to kill him. So Jacob flees uh, and goes to live with his uncle. And there, Laban, Jacob's uncle, outwits him. But God protects Jacob, and he blesses him, and Jacob ends up leaving with most of Laban's flocks. And now Jacob is returning home, and he is scared of what his brother will do. He's in danger. He's vulnerable. And he knows it. So verse 1 tells us, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Now, 
one of the ways that Hebrew narrative as a style of literature communicates meaning is by linking different passages together through key words. And angels have come up a few times in Genesis, but only once have we read the expression, the angels of God. And that was back in verse 12 of chapter 28 in Jacob's dream, where the angels of God were ascending and descending on a ladder reaching to heaven. And now Jacob encounters them again. And both Jacob himself and the reader is reminded of that event. And one of the primary points of that ladder reaching to heaven was to teach Jacob that God is active in the world, that, that heaven impacts real life, that ultimately the path to all blessing, including earthly blessing, is through the God of heaven and earth. The angels carry out God's will on the earth. And so now, as Jacob returns to face his brother, God confronts him and reminds him that he is active in the world, that heavenly realities are not simply about the future. They are not simply theological truths. They are practical, tangible realities that shape our lives in the here and now. But that is not how Jacob has ever lived. Jacob is a man who has always relied on himself, and has always used earthly means to get what he wants. And so as we continue reading through this first section, we will see the author very carefully laying out a whole series of parallels. So first, in verse 1, we read about the angels of God, and then in verse 3, we see that Jacob sends messengers to Esau. Now, angel and messenger are the same word in the original. That is to say, God has his messengers, Jacob has his messengers which is primary. In, in verse 2, Jacob calls out, this is God's camp. And then he names the place Mahanaim based on the Hebrew word for camp. And that is the very first time that word appears in the entire Bible. And then just a few verses later, we read the word again as Jacob divides into two camps. That is to say, God has his camp and Jacob has his camp, which is primary. In, in verse 4, Jacob tells his messengers, Then you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant, your slave, Jacob. And even accounting for the most extreme Near Eastern courtesy, this is language that a man would never use to speak to his twin brother. This is the language that Abraham uses for God in chapter 18. Jacob is taking the posture of a slave before his master and lord. So Jacob says that Esau is his Lord. God is also Lord. Practically, in this crisis, which master is primary? In, in verse 5, we read Jacob is doing all of this in order that I might find favor in Esau's sight. Well, where else do you read that kind of language? Chapter 6, Noah finds favor with God. Chapter 18, Abraham seeks God's favor. Chapter 19, Lot, again before the Lord. And again, you could read that as just in crazy level of deferential language, but it, it leads the reader to question Jacob's perspective. Esau could grant him favor. God grants favor to his people. Which one is primary? And so one on top of another, these parallels are stacked. Who is Jacob's Lord? Whose favor does he need? Which master does he need to appease? Whose army, whose camp is going to protect him? Whose messengers are going to accomplish the critical task? 
And these parallels just keep hitting the reader, sort of like waves pounding a beach. The earthly and the heavenly, both are real. Which one is fundamental? Which one is Jacob's primary focus? And which one will determine and shape the other? Up to this point in Jacob's life, the earthly has always been primary, in the way he thinks at least. He, he depends on himself and on his own resources. He, he believed in God, but practically God was secondary. At his core, Jacob was self-reliant. So yes, God has his messengers, it's nice, but Jacob's counting on his messengers. Yes, it is, it is nice to have God's favor, but in real life, what he needs right now is Esau's favor. And yes, God has a heavenly army, it's but it's not clear that Jacob thinks they are of much use with 400 men riding towards him with actual swords and spears. Most of the things we rely on are good things, important things. Much of the time, our problem is one of priority. We tend to treat ultimate things as secondary and secondary things as ultimate. You see, faith is not simply believing that God is real. It is believing that God is primary. It is recognizing that he actually is the true source of everything we want and need. Now, there are a lot of ways that you can tell how you stack the different things you rely upon. So, for example, you can look at what it is that makes you confident and what makes you fearful. Because the higher something is on your list, the more you depend upon it, the more it will impact your sense of peace and confidence, your feeling of security. But Jacob's life shows us another test as well. You see, higher priorities trump lower priorities, meaning we are willing to compromise the things that are lower down on the list. And so up to this point in his life, Jacob has constantly done things that violated God's will. He was a liar and a cheat. And it's not that he didn't care about God, or that he didn't care at all about right and wrong. He just cared about other things more. He needed other things more. He relied on other things more. And we all have layers of things that we rely upon. And the things that are lower down on your list will get compromised for the things that are higher up your list. And so find the things that you will never compromise and you have found what you truly depend on. The first thing we learn is that we all have layers of reliance. And that brings us to our second section, verses 6 to 8. And here we learn about the insufficiency of self-reliance. See, just like he has always done when faced with a challenge or threat, Jacob gets to work. He's proactive, he plans, he tries to get out ahead of the problem. But there are a couple issues. First, He's told in verse 6 that his brother is coming to meet him and that he has 400 men with him. Is that a super lavish welcoming party? Is it an army sent to destroy him? Jacob has no idea. He feels that he needs Esau's favor. He has tried to win Esau's favor, but it is not clear to him if he has succeeded. And you see, he did not learn the lesson from the previous chapter. See, just before this incident, Jacob had escaped from Laban, his uncle. 
And if you read through that, that account, Jacob had tried to outwit Laban, just like he did his dad and brother, and he failed. Laban took him to school. Jacob's plans didn't work, right? And then Laban finds out that Jacob's tried to, skeep, to sneak away. He pursues him, but God intervenes. And so when Laban finally catches up to Jacob, he says, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God intervened to protect Jacob. He didn't need Laban's favor because he had God's favor. God's protection trumped Laban's hostility. And Jacob experienced that, but he still didn't really believe it. And frankly, a lot of us are the same. In different ways, in times, we have experienced God's power, his protection, his provision. But then when confronted by a new threat, we often fail to trust God to provide for us again. And this is not just a problem of faith. It's an incredibly practical problem in our lives. See, because God actually is real. He actually is all-powerful. Nobody beats him. Nobody can challenge him. If God is for us, then who can be against us is not just a lovely-sounding Bible verse. It is an inescapable reality of our lives. But for many of us, our natural tendency is to treat God as a backup plan. He's further down the pyramid of things that we rely upon, which means we do not truly rely upon him as God at all if we're trusting in other things more. But what this section shows us is that our earthly means can never be enough. That's the point of the rest of verses 6 to 8. Jacob has no chance at fighting off Esau and his 400 men. Right? Verse 7 tells us Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed. He takes desperate measures, actively planning to sacrifice half of his family in the vain hope that maybe the other half will get away, walking with little kids and sheep before armed men on horses. You may feel good about your position right now. You may feel good about what you have. Maybe you don't. But no matter how much you have, all it takes is for a threat to come against you that is greater than your resources, and you are undone. And so the self-reliant will go back and forth between confidence and fear based on the size of the threats in front of them. Because there are no earthly means that are sufficient to provide lasting protection and blessing. So Jacob had been sufficient to deal with the threats in the first part of his life. He is not sufficient to deal with this. And that always happens to the self-reliant. Sometimes it happens quickly, sometimes not until the very end of life. But at the end of the day, if you are trusting in yourself, you will be overwhelmed in the end. So while there are many things that we rely upon, if your ultimate trust is in anything other than God himself, you will find it to be insufficient. Maybe you already have. Maybe that day still awaits you. But it is coming. We all choose something to trust in above all our other trusts. Those who trust in themselves, those who trust in anything earthly will find themselves joining Jacob in his desperation and fear 
as they confront a challenge that they cannot master. And that brings us to our third section, verses 9 to 21. And here we encounter a very common human experience. See, Jacob is self-reliant, but he's also overwhelmed. He's afraid that he can't handle the threat in front of him, so he turns to God. The self-reliant will often turn to God in a time of need. See, recognizing our own insufficiency to meet some challenge, it can cause us to seek God's help. But it doesn't necessarily force us to recognize the primacy of God's provision. Meaning, it's easy to turn to God as a secondary option, as a backup plan, as a flotation device. And it is not always easy to tell the difference between doing that and real faith. Now, before we dive into this, this little section, we need to appreciate something about the kind of literature that we're reading. Hebrew narrative is unique. It is different than all the rest of the genres in the Bible, and it is different than any kind of English literature that I know of. It is, it is subtler. It is much more content with ambiguity. It, it very rarely communicates through direct statements. Hebrew narrative will not normally tell you, that was bad, or he's good. It will normally throw you, show you through comparison and contrast and key words and narrative flow, and it often leaves you with this measure of doubt and uncertainty. And we see that here. See, this is Jacob's first real prayer in Genesis. He kind of almost prayed in chapter 28, but that was much more just like bargaining with God, giving God his conditions, trying to strike a deal with him. It wasn't really prayer. And now he's turning to God. But here's the question. Is he turning to God as another method of self-reliance and scheming? Or is he turning to God in the place of self-reliance and scheming? Jacob humbles himself. He recognizes that he is not worthy of all the goodness God has shown him. Clearly, he notionally understands that God is the source of blessing. And in verses 9 and 12, Jacob seems to be laying hold of God's promises. Oh God, you said to me, I will do you good. And when he says that, he is quoting Genesis 31, verse 3, kind of. God had promised him this, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Jacob changes, I will be with you, into I will do you good, which is a verb that has very strong connotations of material blessing. And that kind of change is a critical way that Genesis communicates meaning. And it shows us Jacob is still scheming and twisting. He's still bargaining. He's still focused on earthly promises. He, he tries to turn God's promise of his presence into a promise of simple earthly blessing and prosperity. Consider the, the perspective of the 73rd psalmist who says this to God, "'Whom have I in heaven but you?' and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jacob is not saying, God, you are my portion. Jacob is trying to turn a promise from God to be his portion into a promise to grant him the earthly blessing that he wants, and then to hold God, to obligate God to fulfill that made-up promise. In many ways, the prayer sounds good, but the reader is left questioning Jacob's true posture. See, the prayers of the self-reliant are often ambiguous, full of good things, 
but not truly rooted in faith and dependence on God. Jacob humbles himself. He recognizes God's grace. In verse 11, he he honestly acknowledges his fears, and that is all good. But in these verses, Jacob is not so much resting in the promises and person of God as much as he is trying to force God to act in the way that he thinks he needs him to. Jacob has a very clear earthly agenda, and he is trying to hold God to that agenda. He recognizes that he's insufficient to protect himself, but his response is to treat God like another tool that he can seek to wield to save himself. And that is what it looks like when the self-reliant turn to God. They recognize their need. They, they recognize God's power. But there's this ambiguity in their prayers. There, there are unclear motives. Even as they passionately see God, it's, it's not really clear that they're truly resting in him and submitting to him. Often they refuse to release control of the agenda. They view God as another tool they can use to accomplish their ends. Meaning, even as Jacob turns to God, Jacob is still Jacob. The usurper, the schemer, is trying to marshal all of his resources to accomplish his ends. It's just that now he has included God in his toolbox. You see, genuine faith involves a dogged submission and clinging to God. It is not characterized by negotiation or the attempt to pressure God into doing our will. And so you'll see in verses 13 to 21, Jacob goes ahead with his plan to appease Esau, and his offering is enormous. John Walton comments, this gift is larger than towns were likely to pay in tribute to foreign kings. It would be sufficient for Esau to get a good start on a herding operation of his own, or probably more to the point, to reward any mercenaries in his employ who may have been anticipating booty. See, in so many ways, the self-reliant say the right things in prayer. But a question remains. When we pray, are we depending upon God or are we seeking to use him? Are, Are we trusting him or are we seeking to force him to do what we think we need? The section ends in verse 21, and it's insightful. It says, So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed the night in the camp. Now, the word present is the word offering. It is the same word the Old Testament uses to describe offerings made to God. And it can also just be used as a present given to a person. But after all those other parallels we've already seen between the heavenly and the earther, and the earthly, the reader cannot help but notice which Lord Jacob's offering is directed to. He gives an offering to his Lord Esau. And so the reader is made to doubt if Jacob is actually trusting in God. But verse 21 shows us something else as well. Jacob stays in the camp. And remember, there were two camps. Which camp is this? This is not Jacob's camp. This is God's camp. Meaning, Jacob may not yet be truly relying upon the Lord, but he is in the middle of the Lord's camp. He he sends out this last desperate attempt to save himself, but he is still in the midst of the Lord's camp. God is about to deal with him. The self-reliant man is about to be confronted 
by the true God. And so we come to our final section. And here we are given a picture of the breaking of self-reliance. We learn what it means to truly depend upon God. We learn how to believe. We learn how to pray. Jacob sends all of his family across the river, and then we read, and Jacob was left alone. And that is a critical experience for every human being. Right? We are social creatures. God built us to live in community. But in some of the most important aspects of life, we are alone. There are certain things that each of us must face on our own. We will all die alone. We will all stand before God in judgment alone. In our darkest and most difficult experiences in life, we will trust God ourselves or we will not. Our our friends and family cannot do that for us. At the end of the day, it is God with whom you must deal. Or perhaps more importantly, at the end of the day, God will deal with you. And so in his moment of greatest fear, God comes to deal with Jacob. Now, remember, Jacob got his name because he was born grabbing at his brother's heel. And for his whole life, he has been grasping. He's been wrestling. And now the grasper is grasped. God comes to wrestle with Jacob to show him with whom his true battle lies and where victory is actually found. Now, If we're going to understand this last section, it is critical that we understand what this wrestling match was really about. See, this is not a contest to see who would win or who is the better wrestler. It says nothing of the kind. It was a contest to see if Jacob would continue to hold on, even in the face of an overwhelming opponent that he could not defeat or control. Look with me. Verse 25 tells us that the man touched his hip socket and immediately it was put out of joint. And if you've ever read a translation or heard someone say that the man struck Jacob, they're just wrong. In this conjugation, this verb does not mean to strike. It means to touch. And it often refers to a very light, gentle touch. The man barely touches Jacob's hip and it is dislocated meaning he is overwhelmingly more powerful than Jacob. So Jacob's battle is not to pin or defeat this opponent. There is no way you are pinning somebody who can disable you with a touch. Jacob's battle is to hold on. And so you see in verse 26, the man say, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go. That was the contest. Jacob's victory was the refusal to give up. This is not an image of two equal competitors. It is an image of a defeated competitor who still refuses to let go. Meaning Jacob's challenge is to hold on even when he is faced by a God whose power and will he cannot possibly contest or control. God is overwhelmingly above you. You cannot force him to do your will. You may not understand all kinds of things about him. You cannot defeat him. He can lay you bare with a simple touch. 
Will you hold on to him? See, Jacob has always been persistent, but now that persistence is redirected. He's learning that the real key to blessing is not tenaciously carrying out his own schemes. It is rather tenaciously holding on to God, even when it is difficult, even when he doesn't know the outcome, and even when it does not seem like God intends to bless him. See, in verse 26, when the man says, let me go, it seems like he wants to leave without blessing Jacob. And still Jacob holds on. I won't let you go unless you bless me. He has reached the point of desperation. J.I. Packer describes the encounter like this. Jacob was thrown into complete despair, and now God's time had come. That night, as Jacob stood alone by the river, God met him. There were hours of desperate, agonized conflict. Jacob had hold of God. He wanted a blessing, an assurance of divine favor and protection in this crisis, but he could not get what he sought. Instead, he grew ever more conscious of his own state, utterly helpless, and without God, utterly hopeless. He had hitherto been self-reliant, believing himself to be more than a match for anything that might come, but now he felt his complete inability to handle things, and he knew with blinding, blazing certainty that never again dare he trust himself to look after himself and to carve out his identity. Never again dare he try to live by his wits. In verse 27, the man asks Jacob, what is your name? In effect, God is calling Jacob there to recognize and to confess his old identity. And this is God's answer to Jacob's plea for a blessing, to change his name, to lead Jacob through a process that will remold his character. And his change of name reflects that change of character. See, no longer will Jacob be someone who finds blessing through grasping and conniving. Rather, God tells him, you have already won. You held on to me. You don't need to grasp. You are not Jacob anymore. You already possess what you need. My favor is upon you. You have my promise. But what Jacob can never have is control of God. That's the point of verse 29, where God refuses to tell Jacob his name. See, in in the ancient world, to name something or even to know the name of something was a picture of having power over it. God knows Jacob's name. God can give Jacob a new name. God is the Lord. Jacob may never have power over God, but he is victorious nonetheless. See, he is learning what the true path to victory is. Listen, you cannot bless yourself. You cannot force God to bless you. But God's desire is to bless. The the path to blessing is through holding on to God whose desires for us are good. And perhaps more than anywhere else, prayer is the means through which we do this but we often only learn this lesson through suffering. Robert Alter comments like this. He says, A powerful physical metaphor is intimated by the story of wrestling. Jacob, whose name can be construed as he who acts crookedly, is bent, permanently lamed by his nameless adversary, 
in order to be made straight. True faith requires abandoning self-reliance and clinging to God alone. Derek Kidner writes, After the maiming, combativeness had turned to a dogged dependence, and Jacob emerged broken, named, and blessed. Sometimes God has to break us to enable us to see that we cannot rely on ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot protect the things that we care the most about. We cannot secure our blessing. Jacob emerged broken, named, and blessed. In order to be named and blessed, his self-reliance had to be broken. When God wounds his people, it is always so that he can heal. Cling to him. Come to him, trusting in him alone. Let's pray.